Believers in Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul tells the Colossians in the application of the truth that Jesus is your Savior and that he's given you his life through the work of the cross and you're trusting in him. He says, so as those those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ Richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. We have in this a description of your Christian spiritual life, empowered by God the Holy Spirit who lives in you, sent by the Lord Jesus who told the disciples not to be worried, not to be dismayed that he was leaving. He would be with them to the end of the age. He would send another helper, the paraclete, the the Holy Spirit, who would be their teacher, who would be equipping them for the work that God had for them and the mission Jesus had commended. You and I have wonderful riches in Christ because He has lavished on us the Holy Spirit to make us fit, capable for service to him. And it is the Holy Spirit, this personal uh, third person of God, the Spirit of God, uh, who equips us for everything that is pleasing to God. The Lord Jesus said, abide in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. This is the Christian walk. This is the walk in dependence. The Apostle Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And it's this concept of Christian spirituality that Jesus ultimately is pointing to when he tells the disciples that their righteousness must go beyond that of the scribes and Pharisees. See, the Holy Spirit bringing forth the fruit of righteousness in you, of love and joy and those things, that makes you, that makes you a person whose actions, whose attitudes are not regulated by law against such things of love and joy and peace. There is no law. The law that shows you your sin is the law that cannot regulate the work of the Spirit because it is absolute righteousness. And this is why we talk about personal sin as believers. Personal sin is an absurdity in our lives because of our position in Christ, and yet we struggle with it. If your conscience is defiled because of actions that you've taken, thoughts you've had, Words you've said, good, good. You should have a problem with sinful behaviors as a believer in Christ. But if your conscience is so defiled that you feel totally in despair and there's nothing we can do, then you have misunderstood the grace of God, which is toward you constantly because of Christ. If we confess our sins, that's to God, then he, God, and that's the Father in context of 1 John 1, he, God, the Father, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Overemphasizing your position in Christ such that you don't have to deal with personal sin or account for it as a believer is a grave error that misunderstands the operational circumstance you're in. You're not resurrected. You haven't 
lost this tendency towards sin, but your sins are forgiven. The sins are paid for. You are righteous in Christ in your position. When we stop short of God's righteousness in our words and thoughts and deeds, the Bible calls this sin. And the solution to personal sin is the grace of God. He will clean you right up, but you got to tell the truth. The personal spiritual life that God is calling us to live is personal. It's interactive. It's I'm really drawing near to God. And this is a problem in your time, perhaps more than ever, is that we don't deal with God personally. For example, God tells you to pray and ask. Ask for uh, whatever in my name that is according to my will, and I'll do it. This is how God teaches us to pray. And then we get theological. We think God is omniscient. He knows all that's going on in my heart. He knows what I want. And so we don't talk to him because he already knows. And we have missed the point of the personal engagement. Take some time with prayer, as Lou talked about first hour. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. It's very important that we engage God in truth, that the spirit who lives in us is the spirit of truth. And he is to equip us, but we don't want to be quenching and grieving the Spirit. So if you need to confess any known sins to God, this is the time. Let's pray. Father, we pause to thank you for your greatness, for your kindness, for your revelation to us. Father, we understand that thanksgiving is recognizing grace. To give thanks to you in the New Testament is to to recognize your grace, that you've already acted. We are constantly responding to your antecedent grace. Thank you for our salvation we have in Christ. Help us learn more of it today as we consider what you expect and what you've rendered us capable of in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to apply with you what we've discussed last time in verses 17 through 20 of Matthew 5, where the Lord Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets, and that I come to abolish but to fulfill. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. We who are not under the law must say with Jesus, because we're in Christ, who has fulfilled the law, that he did not come to abolish or to destroy the law, but he came to fulfill it. I believe in context, he's speaking of the Mosaic law. And I think that because he says the law and the prophets, he's talking about the Old Testament. And the Old Testament stands. The Old Testament founds us. It is our ground upon which we're firmly standing, the word of God, the rock of truth. The Lord Jesus explains his statement about fulfillment instead of abolition by saying, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, the yod, the jot, the yod or yoda in Greek, which is the yod in Hebrew as we saw last time, or the stroke, that's the kariah, that's the small little horn on the end of a letter to differentiate a dalit from a resh or something. The smallest little piece of a letter, not a letter, not the littlest letter or the littlest piece of the littlest letter, is what that means, will pass from the law until all is fulfilled or accomplished. There is in, for example, in Islam, there is a doctrine of, I believe it's called in English, abrogation. I forget what they call it in in, um, Arabic. But it's the idea that if Muhammad gets a later prophecy, then the prior prophecy is canceled. That's a... I've heard Islamic scholars talk about this. 
that if, if, you, if you have new information, then that renders the old information obsolete or uh, contradicted, but don't worry about it. The new thing is the new thing. And uh, we were, I'm accused of, of believing this way as a dispensationalist, as a person that believes that you hold fast to what God promised Israel, and you also look for what God is doing that's different in the church age than he was doing in the age of Israel. And, and so how you work that is really challenging. It's part of the summary of Scripture, but the more we summarize, the more we really have to look at the details, and that's, that's really the hard thing. We don't believe in abrogation of the Old Testament, in other words. We don't think that just because Jesus has come and fulfilled the requirements of the law on our behalf, that that cancels what God said in his covenant arrangement with national Israel at Mount Sinai. We don't believe that it cancels what he said. We believe that what Paul teaches us about the law, it was given to showcase sin, to stimulate sin, to show us our need for a savior and therefore to kill us. And that's what the Mosaic law did. Nobody ever kept it but Jesus. So when Jesus is giving his instruction before the coming of the work of Christ, before the coming of the Holy Spirit, when he's telling his disciples in Israel what is expected, they're all supposed to leave the conversation mourning. They're all supposed to say, I'm poor in spirit. I am broken. The law has killed me. They're all supposed to be like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he sees God and this vision of the temple and he says, woe is me for I'm ruined for I've seen the Holy One of Israel. I have seen the difference between my sin and God's righteousness. He's other. And we're all supposed to be broken as we look to the law and Jesus is going to teach us this. But it's very important to understand this text is not telling us that you can't eat certain types of food. This text is not telling us that there are certain rituals necessary on the eighth day for little boys. That's not what he's saying, and that would be a misapprehension, a misinterpretation of what he said. And I might be confused about this, honestly, if I didn't have what Paul tells me. If I didn't have the apostles of Jesus continuing the, the, the fleshing out of this revelation that Jesus is introducing here. He says, whoever annuls the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses, greatly surpasses, we saw last time, the, that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Literally, it will be impossible for you to, absolutely impossible for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. One thing that is really obvious in any English translation that you might uh, notice is that he says uh, least and great, okay? And then he doubles down and goes, can't enter, Can, does not enter. This is, a, this is something Jesus does a lot in his teaching. He starts here and he goes here. It's, a, it's an elevation of the thought. And we'll see it also uh, in other places in chapter five where he does that kind of um, rhetorical device. And so this is a very challenging thing to the people that he's speaking to. Listen, they think that the scribes and Pharisees are the good people, the holy ones, and they're the teachers by their lives and by their examples and by their precepts. They're the ones that we look to to know how to please God. They're the ones that have the righteousness, and if we copy them, we'll have the same righteousness that they have, and we can hope to merit whatever, whatever they merit. And that's the idea. And so Jesus is coming largely in this portion of scripture to completely, uh, almost like a spatula, uh, to just grab everything that, that they're doing with the law and just throw it out. They're misunderstanding the law and they're not good teachers. They're false teachers. And Jesus is supplanting them with good teaching. 
Very important to grasp that as you integrate what Jesus is saying into your theology. He says in verse 20, for I am saying literally to you that if your righteousness, this is the key word perhaps in the entire Bible, dikaiosune, D-I-K-A-I-O-S-U-N-A-N-E is the Greek word. It's a noun and it's a really important topic that the apostles of the Lord Jesus will pick up on. And it's a battleground. What I'm talking through today is a battleground among like-minded Christians for what is this talking about? What does this mean? Let me give you an example. If you give to the poor, is that act righteousness? Yes, it is a righteous act. It is a form of righteousness. If you give the poor with a false motive, if your motive in giving to the poor is, well, it makes me feel good or something, like it's about me now, or how I will be perceived by others, is the act itself righteous? It's a righteous act by virtue of the action itself. Is it righteous through and through from its origin? It's not. It has a false motivation. And that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. Well, what about the question of God's perfect moral goodness, his dekaiosune theu, his perfect righteousness as his attribute, not his actions? Is that what we're talking about, the very character of God? Well, everything God does from his righteousness, which is everything he does, is itself righteous. And so an act of God is righteousness itself. So in other words, what I'm trying to show you is this is really complicated. There's a lot that you could philosophize about this until the Lord comes back. Well, why don't we? Let's just talk about righteousness from now on. Now, here's what you can't do with righteousness in the teaching of the Lord Jesus or his apostles. You can't say, I get it from me by the good things that I do. You can't say, I who am me. After all, it's me. Everybody look at me. You can't say, I am doing good things, and so I am righteous. You can't be the source of the righteousness that God requires. You have to get it from him. It has to be his, and it has to be a grace gift from him. Otherwise, he's not interested. Our righteous deeds are filthy rags in his sight. Again, to quote Isaiah. So Jesus is blowing their minds and their entire theological paradigm. Look, these are the good church-going, if you will, uh, the the synagogue-attending Jews. These are the people in the first century that are regularly seen thinking the thoughts of God and doing the things of God with God's people, as it were, because they're listening to the rabbis. They're devout, but they're being taught and led astray by false teachers. And that's a lot of what Jesus says. Uh, You know, he's not very complimentary to the scribes and Pharisees. We, as believers in Christ who love him, have discipled him and said, I'll serve him because he's my savior in response to the great love he's lavished on me. I love him back. We have discipled up and said, my life is his. We understand Jesus to be very kind, very gentle, very generous, but honest with us. We've come to see Jesus by reading the, the gospels and the epistles we come, and the book of Revelation. We've come to see the Lord Jesus as dominant, as glorious, as magnificent, and yet he put on a towel and washed his disciples' feet. And yet he said, I've given you an example, you walk in my steps. He said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. So he's challenged us to walk with him. And even though he's magnificent and beyond and, and unbelievably glorious, he's He's our savior and he's our shepherd and we cling to him and he has an intimate relationship with us. Behold, I'll be with you all the way to the end of the age. We who are discipled up see him as the scriptures present him. We don't see him going after us. We don't see him condemning us because he was condemned for us. But Jesus has harsh words for satanically inspired false teachers. He is rough with the scribes and Pharisees because he's a good shepherd. There is a righteous and holy violence, whether verbal or whether physical, 
that a shepherd must employ. When he sees false teaching, Jesus calls it out. When he sees a wolf, he breaks out his sling. He's a good shepherd. And his sling and his harsh words are not for the sheep. They're for the people, the sheep that might be led astray as necessary, but they're certainly, I should say the, the, the words, the corrections are for the sheep led astray. But, but I'm just showing you, a good shepherd is gentle and mild and kind. And David sings sweetly to his flock as the sweet psalmist of Israel. I, I doubt not a lot of the psalms we have from David were written while he was tending a flock. He's a very intelligent person. He's got to do something with his brain while he's out there watching the sheep. It's a beautiful thing that he would sing to them and soothe them and be a comfort, comfort to them just like he was for King Saul. And our Savior is, is like that with us. He's a gentle shepherd, but he's a very competent protector. And that's what you have here. He is helping the people coming to him as his students disconnect from the false teaching, the satanic misinterpretations of the Mosaic law that the scribes and Pharisees were plying in his day. He says, if, you, if, if your righteousness does not greatly exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will absolute, absolutely not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I believe in the culture, the idea was that the rabbi, the great one, that's what it means, my great one. Jesus says, don't be called rabbi. Don't be called someone's great one. It doesn't just mean teacher. It, that, that they mean you're my teacher because you're my great one. Who's great? God is great. So don't, they don't even, Jesus doesn't even like that designation. But he says, if you're my student, if you're listening to me, then you're going to have to not follow the example of those that you think you're supposed to follow. Be like so-and-so, he's righteous. Be like so-and-so, he's doing the right way. We'll follow his example. And Jesus is saying, you can't do that. Enter the kingdom. They're leading you astray. They're, these are false teachers. I love what Dr. Pentecost said in Design for Living. I don't like everything he says but here, but just hear it. I had this man in class a few times at Dallas Seminary. I really appreciate his work. How good must one be to be accepted in Matthew 5, 20? The Lord said, one jot or one tittle shall not pass until all satisfied. Our Lord, was, our Lord was saying that to be accepted into heaven. Now, I like yeah, the new heavens and new earth is the final form of the kingdom. So I'm not going to quibble with the calling it heaven. But uh, to go to the kingdom, which is the coming kingdom of the new heavens and new earth. One must be as good as the holiness of God revealed in the law. So the scribes and Pharisees are the ones that are keeping the law, but they're not. See, theirs doesn't make it. Their practices are not in accord with God's perfect righteousness. And he'll show that again and again in his teaching. That is how good a man must be to go to heaven. He must be as good as God. This is why there's no contradiction between what Paul says in Romans 4 and 5 about the law and what Jesus is saying here. See, the law is supposed to make you mourn. It's supposed to say, I need a savior. I need somebody to save me from this wretchedness of my sin because the law keeps killing me. You have to be as good as God. I didn't just give you a goal to, 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 to a hill to climb. Okay, let's be as good as God. You're supposed to be destitute of any hope that you could be as good as God. That's where God is actually calling us to some intellectual honesty. Am I? And now here, here's what the liberal uh, theologian does. What is liberal? Liberal theologian is somebody that says that God's word isn't the center. It's this inner experience and God's word may or may not be right. That's liberal theology. Here's where the liberal goes with this. Well, we do our best. I mean, yeah, nobody's as good as God, but we're trying our best. And if you try your best, then God will approve of you. That's religion. And that's every religion in the world. 
that you are going to stand or fall on your own merits based on your own practices that are brought from within. And, and what Jesus is saying is that's what the scribes and Pharisees are doing and it won't cut it. Pentecost says this is how good a man must be to go to heaven as good as God. We stand guilty and condemned before God. Romans 3.23 says um, we're guilty. For unless a man keeps the whole law, James says this, he is guilty. But in the grace of God through the death of Jesus Christ, a righteousness has been provided for guilty sinners. Now, when Jesus said these words, he had not yet provided the, the sacrifice which would bring our justification. And the idea from uh, Genesis chapter uh, 15 that Paul uses in Romans 4 is that in the promise of this coming justification, believing in the Lord, it will be reckoned to them as righteousness. But it's a transaction that happens by faith. You bring faith and need, and God brings grace and justification, the declaration of your righteousness. Pentecost goes on to say, blood has been shed to wash away the stain of every sin. Righteousness imparted makes a man as righteous as Jesus Christ is righteous. Now that word imparted is imprecise, and he means imputed. But the point is that when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus, which has fulfilled the law. So that a holy God can look at the same one who stands in Jesus Christ and say, look at, the, look at you, stand in Christ and say, that one is acceptable in my sight. Accepted in the beloved. There's no greater word in all the gospel than that. We have been accepted by a holy, righteous God to stand in his presence. I think this is the substance. This is what Jesus is pointing to when he says, you don't understand the law if you're listening to the scribes and Pharisees. And the reason I think that is because of what the law is. It's a portrait of God's righteousness. And so they're like, look, we're good. We're keeping the law. But they don't. And it's cultural that they don't. And I'll show you why uh, in a little bit. We're talking about the question now of imputation versus impartation. Imputation versus impartation. This, this is a theological quibble, but I think it really matters. Imputation is the declaration to your account of God's righteousness. He says, your ledger has my righteousness. And he, 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 he imputes that to you. It's an accounting term. Impartation is this idea that you're now perfectly righteous in yourself because you're saved, because you're a believer. And be careful about that because that idea that, well, I'm already righteous, I don't sin anymore, is, a, is an absurdity. Of course you still struggle, right? And this, is, this gets into a lot of, about grace and mercy, because, well, if I'm saved and I'm imparted with God's righteousness, then I should practice it. You should. If I should practice God's righteousness and I don't, then somehow that impartation has been lost. And that's where you get an Arminian idea that you could lose your salvation. But you're not saved by your practices. You're not held in salvation by your practices. You're saved by God's grace. And it begins when you first trust in Christ. Simple childlike faith in Christ. So being declared righteous is what we're calling justification. And that is an imputation to your account as God's righteousness. It's called uh, imputation uh, when we call it dikaio, um, to be declared righteous. Being righteous in your practice, which is the topic Jesus is pointing to. Like you're not really keeping the law. If you follow the scribes and Pharisees, you're definitely not keeping the law. No one is keeping the law. This is righteousness in practice. And it is sanctification, the way it works, or by impartation somehow. There is this practice of righteousness where righteous character is being developed. And it's a, it's a process. When we talk about our justification, it is settled when we first trust in Christ and we'll call it positional truth. The Apostle Paul consistently describes believers, 
All you did was believe. All you did was trust in Christ. But by a transaction of God's grace, you have been rendered in Christ. It's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where you're identified with Jesus. And so that is your new position. It is positional truth. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden you love like Jesus. It means all of a sudden you are responsible and you're beginning to be capable of loving like Jesus. It's your positional truth. And it's so vital to understand the distinction. Being righteous, though, in practice is incumbent on you if you are a believer in Christ and in Christ by position. You're supposed to work out that positional truth, that salvation, with fear and trembling. You're supposed to walk in a worthy manner. You're supposed to bring forth the fruits of righteousness. This is your sanctification, being righteous in practice. It is both position in Christ, I am one who has completely fulfilled the law because I'm in Christ. So he did it. So that is applied to me. That's my positional truth. First believed in Christ is true for every believer, but also in my practice by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm supposed to love as commanded. I'm supposed to do the things that Jesus has expected of me. And listen, if you are loving with God's love, as a product of the Holy Spirit working his word through you, where you're choosing to obey the command to love. For example, a new commandment I give you, John 13, 34. Paul says in Galatians 6, if you bear one another's burdens, you're fulfilling the law of Christ. Love one another. If I'm obeying this command in the power of the Holy Spirit so that it's God's love through me, I am practicing righteousness. I am doing that which accords with the infinite the perfect righteousness of God. Now think about that. We just said something as miraculous happening in your daily experience. Something that you and I could never expect to be able to produce. God is bringing off through us. Greater works than these you'll do. I mean, Jesus is healing the sick. He's raising the dead. But you and I, despite our cussedness, despite our, 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 our tendencies to, to be driven by lust and to submit to the old master and our sinful nature, despite this tendency in us, God can bring forth the infinitely perfect righteous fruit of your performance in your experience, moment by moment, trusting in him every moment of the day, walking by faith, not by sight, taking in his word consistently, living it out, having our, our thinking renovated, this is the Christian spiritual life that is our birthright. We have the answer to the riddle that you have to be as holy as God is holy. I want to summarize some of the teaching of Jesus' righteousness uh, in the law, what, he, what he's doing as we proceed. First, the disciples are called to reject the false teaching of the religious leaders concerning the law. That's one of the great summaries of Matthew chapter five. They're supposed to take that teaching and reject it. And that is a scary thing to do. These are the known authorities. And you're trying to tell me that you have a higher authority, that you know better than these people that study the law all the time. You haven't even been to school, Jesus. See, you, this is a scary thing to do. He's calling them to a radical faith that disregards their culture. And I don't mean every aspect of their culture. I'm talking about the religious moral aspect of their culture. The good people, they're not good. This is radical. What he's calling them to do is radical. And it's fearful. And I hope you can just get a sense of it your whole life. These people in the robes, they blow the trumpet when they come give their offerings. These are the good people. Everyone knows it. How do you know? Well, everybody knows it. It's a cultural norm. 
Satan's good at establishing those. You really can't look left and right in your culture. You have to look to God's word, and that's what they're called to do. These people could read the scriptures better than we can. They had, well, there was a lot of clouded misunderstandings from cultural stuff. Maybe they couldn't, I don't know. They, they could read the scriptures, a lot of them in Hebrew. They could roll out Deuteronomy and read it and learn of God's expectations for national Israel. They had it in their hand. They had it in their mouth. They, they were the Deuteronomy 6 people. But the more they listened to the false teachers and the less they listened to Moses, the more Jesus had to come in and make this correction. And that's, that's the substance of chapter 5. They have misinterpreted and misapplied the law. Interpretation is one, we say. Application is many. Now, there's one meaning to what a person says. It's the meaning that they have. Even someone's asking me about John 3, you must be born again or you must be born from above. Which one is it? John means a double entendre. He means a pun when he says that. You must be born again, from, is from above, and it's both true. And John does that several places in his gospel. But that's one meaning. He means both, but that's one meaning. Understand, it doesn't mean something else, like you must do works to be saved. Or you must, um, you know, you must get yourself born again. Or, or some other thing that the, the text isn't saying. It means what the author means by it. Interpretation is one. Do you think that they have misunderstood that what God means through Moses in the Mosaic law? They have. They've misunderstood and misinterpreted. What's the other thing? Application is many. What you do with seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I know what that means. What you do with that is what the, the Bible study guy means when he says, what does this mean to you? How does this work in your specific life? In your, and God has a right answer for you. And it won't change the meaning that, that he's, he means by the text, but the specific way that you will at work, for example, not falsify the documents that the person, the middle manager over you is saying, just sign it different. You won't. Because you're trusting God for your livelihood. You've made a mistake or they made a mistake. I'm sorry, I'm not going to falsify these documents. We can do whatever review is necessary, but I, 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 there's a reason the date is, is written on that thing, and I, I, I won't. Because I'm going to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these necessities I have will be added to me. Just for one example that I have no idea if that would apply to anyone here. For your sake, oh God, I'm going to do this the best I can. And there's a, there's a way I could do this job, whatever the work is, that would get by and they would approve of it. But it wouldn't be the best. It wouldn't be the best way to do it. So because I'm with you, because I'm yours, because my work is your work, I'm going to do this the best I can. I'm going to do it the right way. And I'm going to, and it's going to satisfy my conscience toward you. And I'm doing it as unto you. I'm, I'm not as a, with eye service as men pleasers. I'm serving you, God, for, for your pleasure. And I'm going to do the best. I'm going to turn the best product I can here. Because I'm not worried about whether I get paid primarily. I'm worried about whether you're pleased with the effort. Seek first the kingdom as righteousness. See, there's one meaning, but there's as many applications of their experiences in life. And so they've, done, they've, they've blown both. They don't know how to interpret the text, and so they don't know how to apply it. Third, the disciples need to embrace the actual teaching of Moses. They need to listen to Moses more than listen to the Pharisees and the scribes. And Jesus is not going to contradict Moses. That's really important. A surface reading of this, he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. People think that therefore Jesus is contradicting what, what was said. When he quotes the scriptures, he never contradicts it. 
But sometimes when he quotes the scriptures, he adds a Pharisaic interpretation of that scripture and he'll contradict that. And he does. And it's really consistent. But that means you have to study it and watch closely. They need to embrace the teaching of Moses, which Jesus is correctly interpreting and applying. Now, that's pretty bold, isn't it, to say that all this generational uh, academic understanding and rabbinical argumentation, that that's just basically set aside and just listen to Jesus? I mean, really? Are we really going to say that? We've been saying that for 2,000 years. We only listen to Paul and James and John and Peter and, 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 and the writer of Hebrews because they're coming from Christ. I'm not sure that I would hang out with James. I think I would uh, definitely hang out with the Apostle Paul. I would try to get on his walking plan, try to lose a little bit of weight, you know, traveling the ancient world, the Mediterranean world. I think I would definitely uh, associate with the Apostle Paul. Peter, um, Peter would probably be a lot of fun, actually, very spontaneous kind of person. Um, but I would not uh, devote my life to studying what these men said because of their personalities. Understand. Jesus Christ has given us these apostles. That's what the New Testament is. It's his word through these men in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, um, yeah, we're setting aside all the human misinterpretation. Moses wasn't wrong, but what men did with Moses at times was wrong. And it had kind of crystallized and encrusted as this, as this system of error of works righteousness in part that God is correcting through the teaching of Jesus. Fourth, the calls, this calls, this listening to Jesus calls for genuine and practical righteousness inside out. This is why you mourn. This is why the Beatitudes have the bad things in them because it's about us. We're broken. We're broken. And God is not. But he's merciful and he's gracious to us. And that's the gospel. In, inside out practical righteousness, God wants it from you. What this means is that there's never a place in the scriptures that say, if you're once saved, always saved. And you are by God's grace because of what he did. If you're saved, then it doesn't matter what you do with your choices. The Bible never says that. It says you who have been declared righteous need to walk in righteousness. All right? And that's sanctification. That's your Christian spiritual life. And you never, listen, you never let it go and just say, well, I mean, I, I'm weak and I've failed. And so, you know, it's just going to be that way. You never get callous about sin. You never disregard the claims God has for you, but you keep coming back to his word. You keep saying, what am I supposed to be like? You keep looking to the mirror of the word and keep being transformed internally into what Jesus is like. So what bothers him starts to bother you. What bothers him about others, sure, but let's start with ourselves. What bothers him about me bothers me about me. And now my conscience is calibrated by the word of God. And I think what he thinks about righteousness as compared to my practices and this is, this is called by Satan's cosmic system uh, an illicit Christian guilt. That, oh, I'm just going to get dispensed with all this guilt and just be free. But you won't be free. You'll be weighed down with a burden of guilt and have a seared conscience and a broken soul. And it is a cause of much grief. You'll pierce yourself through with many griefs. To borrow something out of context. No, good guilt is good. Bad guilt is bad. If you're wrong, you need to own it. If God has declared you righteous despite your wrongness, revel in the grace of God and his majesty. Don't wallow in an illicit guilt. That's not what we're saying. But don't change your conscience to be conformed to the world and sin when God has spoken clearly. And then walk in truth, head up. Declared righteous by the grace of God. By his kindness, rendered fit and clean for service if I need to confess any known sins. And able to walk in the light as God himself is in the light. 
Yeah, but I made mistakes in the past. We're talking about as you walk forward. It doesn't say moonwalk in the light, looking in the past. We're not, we're not backing through history, right, and looking at the past and going to solve things. One of the great gifts that God's given us is there is no time travel. You're not going back to go repeat your failures. You're gonna, if you fail, you're going to fail forward. Stop it. Be successful as you trust God and have your conscience calibrated. Don't say my past is so important and I am so right that my past mistakes mean I have to have present failure in my conscience. Let God fix your conscience. Walk in the light. Walk in the truth. And that's what, that's what Jesus is offering as he corrects this, the, this false teaching. Inside out righteousness. And so fifth, the law goes to the heart of man and reveals sin at its source. The law does not let you say, as far as everyone at the synagogue assembly is concerned, I'm pretty good. I'm, I've got it going on. It doesn't let you do that. The law says the behaviors that it's prohibiting are internally produced. They're not external things in your mouth, in your hands, as Jesus will say. Ephesians chapter 5 uh, echoes what Jesus is saying, is suggesting here. For your sanctification as a believer declared righteous by the grace of God upon simple faith. When the Apostle Paul says to the Ephesians, and I'm just grabbing a, a, an application section of Ephesians, he says, therefore, on the basis of chapters 1 through 4, be imitators of God as beloved children, and so walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Let me take a breath. <clears throat> First one all day. Be imitators of God. Theologians that don't have grammatical skills are probably um, in about the same boat as grammarians that don't have theological skills. Thank you. <laughs> this is probably uh, both a problem. What you want is your grammatical understanding in, in what, what Paul says, absolutely without any question, is the imperative. You want that to feed your understanding of theology. It's really important to do. In, in the time in which we live, it's very popular to cheat a little bit on doing theology by what's called theological interpretation. People in my circles don't talk about this and often don't know about this because they don't read about this, but it's a big deal in post-conservative evangelicalism. It's the idea that your prior theological convictions help you interpret a passage. So you're reading a theology from some other passage of scripture into the passage you're, you're studying. And uh, that's a real problem because that means that you're not learning what the person's actually talking about if he's not thinking about that particular theological concept. So, we, so in other words, you have to do the hard work of working something in its context which is what we're doing here. All that to say, he says, Ganestha un mimetai. He says, therefore become or be imitators of God as beloved children. And this word genomai, used right here, translated become or be, is G-I-N-O-M-A-I. It is in red in part because it is a command. I wanted to emphasize it. It is a command of the Apostle Paul on the basis of your position in Christ, your riches that you have, the claim God has on your life, the being a new creation in Christ as the body of Christ, believer and uh, Jew and Gentile together in one new man. Because of all that he said so far in Ephesians, you are to become imitators of God. It's a summary of all that he really said in chapter 4 about all the commands of chapter 4. It is present middle imperative, and all the God's people said, I'm not going to learn that. And you don't have to memorize that. But I want you to know there's information in that statement that you wouldn't know if you don't think about it. 
Present tense in Greek is generally a portrayal of action that's ongoing. And when you have the command mood, the imperative mood in present, it means it's like an ongoing command. It's kind of an open-ended, this is kind of a lifetime pursuit. That's what a general command does. If you have an aorist tense, you could give it a, a, an imperative in what's called the aorist tense. And this is more of a, of a summary command without reference to, to its internal workings. But when you do it in the present tense, what he's doing here, he's saying this is a, 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 an all-the-time responsibility. Be filled by the Spirit is one like that in Ephesians 5, 18 in the same passage. When you have a command from God in the present tense, it's saying this is my life. This is now my responsibility that is binding on my conscience and I have to do it if I'm going to walk with him in a way that pleases him. And it's one of the great blessings of life that God summarizes his expectations and the imperatives and organizes your life. I need to imitate God. I once heard a theologian uh, denounce the concept of the imitation of God by saying, well, that would just be imitation. Yeah, like the scriptures say. Mimetai is a noun. You know what it means? Imitator. One who imitates is where we get the word imitate. So I see my exemplar in God, in this case the Father, and I'm supposed to act like him because I'm his beloved child. And some of you really need to underscore that word, beloved children. He's only talking to people who are believers in Christ, who are therefore beloved children. You might be in trouble with God as a kid, as his kid. You might be uh, out of fellowship with him. He might be a, a target right now for some divine discipline from a good shepherd with a rod, just kind of smacking your flank to get you back on the path. Maybe that's what you're in right now. You shouldn't think of God as other than your father who has you as his beloved child. In fact, in, in Hebrews 12, we know we have a father if we have divine discipline. If you go without divine discipline, maybe you don't have a heavenly father. That's Hebrews 12, applying Proverbs chapter 3. There is divine discipline, but this is an indication of God's love for us. Thank you for the correction that brings me into the path of your blessing. That's all he wants. You're his kid. He wants good, good for you, the blessings of the, the Beatitudes, remember. Become imitators of God as beloved children. Imitator is always used in the New Testament with the word genomai, the verb to be. And it's, it's it, I should probably say be imitators. Be or become, if you're going to say be something and you don't mean a, a process, then you say probably amy, the verb amy. It would say esta here. If it, but since it's genomai, which is the one for the transformation of being, then it may be that there's a nuance, so I've translated become. But I'm just saying these two words are overlapping, amy and, and genomai. They're the two to-be verbs in Greek. We only have one in English, it's is, and all the, all the conjugations of is. But the point I'm trying to make here is that these two things are pretty consistently described as the Christian life. Paul will say, imitate him as he imitates Christ. He'll also tell you to imitate Christ. It's always genomai. Be this imitator. And so what I have to tell you without any question from the scriptures, I mean, there's a lot I can't answer theologically. A lot of questions, they bother me. They, they really bother me, the theological questions that I can't answer. And um, thank you for asking them, and we can join together in being bothered. But this I absolutely, without any question, know that God requires us. He commands it through the apostle Paul that we imitate him. What will that require? If I'm supposed to imitate him, what does that mean? What are the implications of that instruction? Well, many, great in every way. I need the Holy Spirit to empower me. That's where we're headed in 518. This is 5.1. 
And so he gives you another command. Walk in love. Peripateo. Walk in love. Just as also Christ loved us and he gave himself over for us to be an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Imitators of God in the passage. Theos. Imitators of God is the Father. This is a Trinitarian passage. You have God as your exemplar, and then he sent his Son, who is a second witness. So Christ is not called our Father. The Father, God the Father, his Father is called our Heavenly Father, and so we walk as children act, acting like our dad. But then Jesus, his Son, has provided a, a, a rock-solid illustration for us to see what that's like. And notice that it goes straight to agape. Walk in agape. Walk in love. The great commandment Jesus commands. The summary of our life and our practice. The summary of the fruit of the Spirit is love. And all that love does is rejoice in the truth. And it, uh, it acts patiently. And all the fruit of the Spirit is love. This is how you and I primarily bring forth righteousness in our practices. Is that the Holy Spirit brings the love of God through us. He sheds it abroad in our hearts first toward God, and then toward what God loves, toward his people. And that fulfills, actually, if you think about it, the Mosaic law. The law is to love God and love man for God's sake. Ten Commandments. See, this is the high life that you've been called to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, so walk in love. So if I'm going to imitate the Father, I'm going to imitate the Son. If I'm going to imitate the Father, I'm going to walk in love. And let's talk about that verb that's another imperative. Peripateo is literally peri plus pateo. When you put those two together, you get walk around. Walk around. That's etymology. You have to do more than etymology. You have to look at how it's used. To walk around or to go about is to live your life. That's how it's used. And it's used this way a lot in the New Testament. A lot more than genomai and uh, mimetai. To walk in love. It's another present active imperative. You could say, well, present imperative. Wasn't he talking about that like a few minutes ago when I wasn't listening? The present imperative says that it is an ongoing binding responsibility for your moment-by-moment life. And so he even says, live, walk, walk around. The, the, the pro, pro, proceedings of your life are summarized by one really important word, agape. This is a common metaphor. The peripateo is a common metaphor for walking or for the Christian life. And it is in love. It is in love. I just wanted to draw the connection between what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount as, as a misunderstanding of the Mosaic law and how Paul will show you what it is to walk in actual righteousness of God in your practices. If you're not loving God, if you're not loving what God loves with the love that God alone provides through you, you're not doing what we're talking about. And we've got to let ourselves go. We've got to disregard the world. We've got to pay attention to the word. We've got to go after God in prayer and ask him to bring this forth in our lives. And when you ask God in accord with his revealed will, what does he do? It. He does what you ask. That's the deal. Save us, God, from self-righteousness, from the thought that it comes from me, from my own goodness. Save us from Walking on water a little bit because we're looking at Jesus and then look away. And then you sink. You look around, oh, I can't handle this wind and waves. That's right. You were looking at Jesus, you're doing fine. Save us from thinking we stand lest we fall. God, save us from the, from the, the, the thought that we've arrived. Finally, I'm, I am there. I am sanctified. I have become mature. 
Save us from self-righteousness, from hearing the word righteousness and recoiling like the rest of the world because it is an offense. Our Father, we thank you for eternal life. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, our Savior, who is our life and for the righteousness that you have made us. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That if we have Christ, Father, and we do, if we've trusted in him, then we have your righteousness. And having your righteousness and your salvation, we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For your God, the Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit is working in us, both to will and to work for your pleasure. Thank you for the wonderful picture we have of performance righteousness in the character of your son and the the seemingly impossible reality that we can walk in that righteousness by your grace and your power. Father, let this idea, this radical thought, banish any notions we have of self-righteousness. Help us to build our expectations, our dreams, our hopes on what you've said and hope only in the Lord. Father, banish away all the infantile ambitions, all the silly objections we have, and let us serve you with a clear conscience, with an open heart. Let us live this spiritual life. Father, we have family and friends that don't know you, and people here perhaps in the hearing my voice that have not received Christ as Savior. Father, make this issue so clear to them. There is no righteous work they're going to accomplish. If the Pharisees couldn't do it by their carnal musings about the law, then nobody can do it. We need Jesus to come explain it to us and then to provide it. And Jesus died for our sins. Help them trust in Jesus and understand what's at stake. Eternal life requires your perfect righteousness. We only get that by faith alone in him. We praise you for this so great salvation. Help us live it. Help us walk in it. Help our families hear of it. In Christ's name, amen.